Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. As we find an auto backup already, not even a couple miles from the house. Wonderful. Anyway, what I was saying is one man's view of the changing times, the changing world, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated, you might have gathered us that this is your first show then from my personal mobile studio, which is my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. So sometimes when people say, hey, it sounds like that dude's in a car, that's because, hey, that dude's in a car. Um, Today is Tuesday, July 14th, 2009, and this is episode 237, I think, of the Survival Podcast. I'm really not sure. Anyway, folks, today is going to be another listener uh, question day. I've got about seven questioners from listeners, but I'm going to call this one more of a feedback show than uh, than a question show because I have uh, an eighth piece of content that I'm going to read to you in a minute before I get to the questions. Uh, it's really more of uh, actually it's a blog post that a uh, a listener, a long time listener, to the show did about being green, and I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, before I get into today's content, though, let me do the housekeeping. Uh, number one. Region 6 is planning a get-together. Shannon Appleby is looking for help in the planning process. I believe it's the 19th of July. You can check the uh, forum thread that will be in the show notes today for more information on that. But he's in the Iowa area. If you're interested in help planning a get-together that I believe is going to actually happen around sometime in August, uh, please get with Shannon and read that forum thread and uh, get more information on it. Um, also, ask you, as always, support our advertising. They help make doing the show possible. Uh, they are all visible on our website at thesurvivalpodcast.com or thesurvivalpodcast.com, depending on how you say it, what part of the country you're from, I guess. And uh, our advertiser of the day is Ready Made Resources. These guys have a plethora of stuff available to the prepper, everything from tools and, and solar equipment to uh, to mountain house and other long-term storage goods. Please check out Ready-Made Resources. They've been a good, solid sponsor to the Survival Podcast. Uh, as always, I want to encourage you to consider joining our discussion forum. Uh, there are several thousand members of our forum now. Uh, they're great guys. There's people that I've met on that forum that I literally can Consider to be personal friends at this point, and I've learned a lot from them. I think I've helped them learn a lot as well, and we've all taught each other, and that's what community is about when it comes to survivalism and prepping. Uh, last but certainly not least, if you feel you get more than 20 cents in value or 25 cents in value per episode, consider do- joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. You'll get some exclusive content available only to members by making a contribution of either $5 a month or $50 a year year to help support the show and the work that we do here. So let's go ahead and move right on into it today. And uh, let's uh, 
Let's uh, start out with this post. Now, this post is by uh, a guy that calls himself Zombie Axe on the forum. And I'll put a link to it as well in the show notes if you want to check out his blog. And I, I just really like this. He sent this to me yesterday. And since I've got my uh, my intern slash son uh, driving the car today, and I can actually look down at a sheet of paper and read, I thought this would be a cool day to read something written by a listener. And it's a post titled, Ramblings on Being Green. First of all, I'm not buying the whole man is causing climate change debate. I do believe that the earth warms and cools through natural cycles that have nothing to do with if man drives an SUV or not. I do believe in the conservation of resources, and to be wasteful is counterproductive. However, I do not feel that anyone should be forced to, should force their beliefs on anyone else. Pollution of our water and air is a bad thing, but not every time a cow farts in Argentina or a deer takes a whiz in a stream is that bad. There are tons of environmentalist green movements who would love to go back to living like a bunch of vegetarians in the Stone Age, and they want you to do the same. You know the old adage, misery loves company. I am for alternative energy, lessening our dependence on other nations' resources, but also for using what we have. You really think the Chinese, if given a chance, would really give a crap about pumping crude off our shores? I still want my gas guzzler truck for big chores, but I also want my compact car for commuting to work. I want an electric car that goes 120 miles between charges that has a reasonable price to change out the battery packs. But I don't want that to be my only choice. Why? Because I I want to save the sea urchins or New York from flooding? No, because I want to save my money. I'm also for those ugly little compact fluorescent light bulbs that save a bunch of power, but I prefer incandescent for certain lighting. I also like turning off the lights when not in use, but not because it saves the polar bears as Jack Spirico so often says, but because I want to save on my power bill. I want to install solar panels on my home, maybe a windmill too, but I don't want to sell the power to the uh, sell it to the power company. I want to use it all for myself. I can serve water not because I'm trying to save the salamanders, but because I'm on a well. If I use too much water during a drought, I have to pay to dig a new well, three to five thousand dollars in my area. So I don't waste water. I don't waste my water on keeping a green lawn, but I do water my garden to provide my family with food that's not imported from 3,000 miles away. I recycle aluminum cans not because it makes me feel good, but because the guy at the scrapyard pays me by the pound. Someone is making some money off of recycling. Why not you? Does it make me an environmentalist or not that I choose to save money instead of supposedly saving humpback whales? You feel good saving the California condor. I feel good saving money by making my own natural pesticides. Are you superior to me or not? I choose to do these things because they make sense to me, in an economic sense. If they really do save the spotted owl, then great. But like Jerry Maguire says, show me the money. I really think if environmental folks spoke of the great benefits to one's wallet instead of forcing everyone to comply with what they claim Mother Earth told them to say, more people would be green. For the record, CA is green. Green with saved money. Thanks for reading. Labor, CA. And CA, again, means zombie act. So I just thought that was a great blog post. And uh, I'll tell you, for a lot of you guys that have blogs, if you would like to hear me read one of your posts on the air, keep it no longer than that one that I just read right there. That took me about three minutes to read. 
and uh, send it to me, and I'll consider maybe doing this once a week, uh, even if I have to maybe at lunchtime just rub, read one and then splice it in to the next day's show. It's probably not that hard to do, and I think it would be a good way to start giving some of our bloggers out there some better exposure. So let's rock on with some questions now. Uh, Gal writes me. She says, um, how do you stay positive once you wake up to danger? Basically what she said is, I used to be an ostrich. I wasn't even a sheep. I had my head deep in the dirt. Didn't know what was going on. But I was happy. I was content. Then I started to pay attention to what was going on. I started to wake up to dangers. I started to prep a little bit just because of things like hurricanes and storms. And I realized that maybe I needed to do something. So then I started doing some research. Someone told me to Google the world word peak oil. I found out more information about that. And now I worry a lot. I'm apprehensive. I'm concerned. I'm not as happy as I was. And I guess what she's saying in a long way is ignorance is bliss. So what can I tell her to stay positive? Well, number one, the other thing that she told me is she hasn't been on any of the discussion forums yet. Okay, first thing I'm going to tell you is get on the discussion forums. One of the worst things that you can do in any situation, be it something that somebody would consider positive or negative, is to feel alone in it. When you feel like you're the only one or one of very few, it's very easy to be depressed. It's very easy to be apprehensive. When you realize that you're surrounded by thousands and thousands of other people across this country that have woken up to these things just like you have, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable, and that's going to take care of a lot of it right there. So start reaching out into the online communities and become active and become involved. Make some posts, read, see what other people are doing, share your ideas, share your concerns. Hear from people who have already worked through those concerns. These are all very good, I guess you'd call them forms of self-therapy. Next I would say, welcome to the Matrix. Okay, you just swallowed the red pill, or the blue pill, I don't remember which one it was. But now that you've done it, you can't go back in. It's impossible. Now you're aware, now you have knowledge of what's going on. Now you realize that you have this situation that you're going to have to deal with, and it was there whether you knew it or not anyway. So even if you went back into an ignorance is bliss mode, um, you, you still have these problems. You still have these things possibly coming up on you. And that alone should make you more positive because what you should realize now is you are empowered, not weakened through your knowledge. You now realize the things that can go wrong. And somebody sent me an email yesterday that was a letter from an old, I think, Korean War or Vietnam veteran. And it talked about sheeps, sheep dogs, and wolves. And what it said, and I'll, maybe one day I'll read that one because this was really good. But what it said is the sheep never liked the sheepdog. The sheepdog looks too much like the wolf. He has big fangs, and he's a reminder that the wolf might come. So the sheep hate the sheepdog until the wolf shows up. And then they clamor around the lone sheepdog, and they beg him to defend, defend them. And I think that that's kind of where you're at. You're at this state right now where you've kind of woken up to the reality, but you haven't put enough things in place to reassure yourself yet. So just start working on some practical things that you can do to make sure that you're prepared to deal with whatever might come your way. Now let me expand a little bit on the subject of 
peak oil. I don't think you as an individual anywhere in the United States should really worry that much about peak oil right now this second. I think it's a real concern. I don't know exactly when we're going to deal with the real ramifications from it. It could be 2017. It could be 2070. I'm not sure. But I know that we have a lot more time than a lot of the real peakers uh, would lead us to believe. The ones that are out there freaking out right now and saying that we're going to be all out of oil, we're not going to have a drop left by 2020, or that we'll be in such production decline by 2020 that the whole world is going to start grinding to a halt. I don't know how long we have, but we have longer than that. So take a step back from the peak oil concern right now and start the practical preparations that address the things that could happen to you as an individual and start your preparations based on the probability matrix. Your individual safety is the thing that's most at threat. Job loss, loss of a family member, things like that. Um, damage to your home, unforeseen expenses. So get ready for those first. The next next thing that's most likely is a neighborhood or small regional occurrence from a weather event or, or, or any one of a, of, of a number of other things. So start your preps moving that way. By doing something, you'll feel better about it. And then, and finally, realize this. You don't have to accept anything the way that it is. You control your own life and what you do matters. That should be your mantra on a daily basis. If you're having trouble with knowledge where you start to feel fear because of your knowledge, Remember that. Say that to yourself every day. What I do matters. I control my own life. I control my own destiny. I can't tell you anything that would make me feel more positive than that. All right, so another uh, forum member wrote in a question to me. Uh, Dark winter on the forums. And uh, said, what currency would be a good reserve currency? Um, basically, what Dark Winter said is that, you know, just a few years ago, you could go anywhere in the world with American money and buy anything that you wanted. And it didn't matter where you went. You didn't really have to do a currency conversion. You could walk up to a street vendor in, you know, in Mexico and hand them a dollar, and they would go, okay, this is worth nine pesos. Uh, here, this thing's four pesos. So here's the thing, and here's three pesos and change. And they would rather have the dollar than the pesos. Um, I'll tell you what, despite all the bad press the dollar has gotten, that really hasn't changed very much yet. There's not many places that you can go in the world right now where they won't take American money. Uh, American money is the reserve currency standard in the world right now, and it will be for some time to come. I've been one of the big advocates saying we better watch this. I think that the world eventually is going to go off the dollar because we're devaluing it. But there are so many things in place right now that the people that hold the U.S. credit card can't afford to cancel it. Right? The Chinese are the biggest threat, but they would be screwed as much as we are if they were to start calling our debts due. Remember, their currency is based on our currency. So they take their debt that they buy from us, and they say that's one of their assets. They're holding these, these T-bills. And then they print their currency against our debt that we owe them. So to start eliminating that debt by calling it due and forcing the U.S. into bankruptcy and forcing the world off the U.S. dollar would absolutely destroy and tank the Chinese economy right now. That's why I believe they're making these moves into buying real tangible assets. They're buying gold. 
They're going into Africa. They're buying up land and natural resources and companies that mine and manufacture and and, um, and assemble natural resources and, and, do, and buying into engineering companies. And they're buying into nations all over the world, and including here. But they're not buying financial institutions. You don't see the Chinese going out and buying banks, right? They're buying companies that make stuff, and they're buying companies that get stuff out of the ground. And they're being very smart about that. And I do believe they'll make that move, but it's not anytime soon. Now, what would make a good world currency? Um, there's only one answer that I have to that, and I don't have a better one for right now, and that's gold. Gold would make the ultimate currency. Gold would level the playing fields. Gold would make your money not devalue itself on a daily basis. The only way a, a nation would be able to increase its, its amount of dollars would be to increase its gold reserves. And there's a finite level of gold, so that alone would control inflation. And it worked. If you look at the price of goods in the United States, and let's say, oh, I don't know, 1800 and the price of goods in the United States in 1900, there was almost no change in the price of goods. That meant if you took your money and put it under your mattress in 1800, 100 years later, it was pretty much worth the same amount of money. Gold is the only thing that does that. Now, I think longer term, as humanity involves, we actually need to evolve out of a monetary system altogether and go to a fully commodity and resource-based economy. But I don't think the rate has matured enough for that to happen yet. So as an interim, we need a form of tradable currency, and the only one that I see that would work is gold. And again, I just don't see another form of currency with enough acceptance already in place uh, in the financial institutions of the world to work. I guess we could put some of the reserves into silver and some of the reserves into platinum or something like that. Some people have even suggested diamonds, but I, I personally feel that diamonds are completely and totally worthless. I think there's far more of them than anybody is willing to admit. I think if the De Beers family didn't buy up 90% of the diamond-producing uh, mines in the world, the diamonds would be worth about 50 cents today, even for a real nice one. Um, they're just not as rare as we're led to believe, and they don't have the the history that something like gold does in the currency world. So, I, I would move us to gold. Next question is, what do I think about all these czars that um, Obama's appointing. Why is he doing it? What does it mean to us? Um, he's doing it because it's a way for him to create brand new cabinet uh, posts with people with massive amounts of power without having to go to Congress for approval on who he puts in there. Um, when Obama appoints a chief of staff or a secretary of state or a secretary of the interior or something like that, they have to go through a confirmation process through our legislature, and our legislature gets to give them an up or down vote. Now, generally, that's not difficult to do. Um, usually a president gets whoever he wants, even with uh, an opposing majority, and in this case he has um, you know, uh, uh, an allied majority. Uh, so it's usually not difficult, but we saw what happened when he tried to put people into cabinet positions that, you know, once they vetted him just a little bit, we said, hey, uh, maybe we don't need a guy up there that's a tax cheat. 
right? Uh, and maybe we don't need another guy that's a tax cheat. Oh, yeah, and maybe we don't need another guy that's a tax cheat. So I believe it was three people that this ass clown has attempted to put on his cabinet didn't pay their taxes, which is why I guess they're okay with raising taxes. It doesn't matter if you don't pay. Um, but when he puts somebody into the position of a czar, they get a massive amount of power and resources put behind them. Uh, they have the ear of the president. They have the cabinet to help them. And they have all of this power, but they don't go through any confirmation process. So that's what he's doing, is he's really creating what I would call new cabinet positions, calling them something else to give his office more reach and more power, and in doing so, circumventing the legislature. And if I think the Republicans were in power, they might put a check on it, but it's just not something that's very doable right now. But in short, I don't like it. I don't like anything that expands government, even if it looks good on the surface. We have enough government already. Next question. Real good one. Guy asked me a question, and it's it's good, but it's, it's not specific enough for me to be extremely specific in my answer. He said, which extra part should we keep on hand for our weapons? And I'm assuming he means firearms, at least, but he just called them weapons. Um... Well, in general, the things that you tend to either lose or have break on firearms are springs, pins, and any small component piece of things like parts of bolt assemblies and things like that. So that's a good place to start. Another thing to keep on hand extra for just about all of your weapons, because they will not function without it, is probably firing pins. If I were going to build the ultimate redundancy, uh, and let's say I was going to do that with an AR, I would buy two exactly equipped AR-15s, or I would buy two exactly equipped SKSs or two exactly equipped uh, AK-47s, and I would still buy some spare parts. That would allow either weapon to have malfunctions, have those spare parts used to replace them, and the, the eventuality that you ran out of spare parts, you could still create one gun from two, uh, and maybe eventually barter or find an opportunity to come across the additional parts to put the other weapon back in service. There, there's a real benefit to that thinking. And I think a lot of people, like, because we like variety in our firearms, uh, will tend to do things like, well, if I'm going to buy my wife a 22 and I own a Ruger 10-22, well, I'm going to buy her something totally different or my son something totally different because, you know, it, that actually lets me shoot a different gun, right, because we can shoot each other's guns. And I used to do that myself. In fact, we've done it and we have a huge variety of guns. But as, you, as, as we move forward in additional purchases, uh, we're going to make as much commonality as we can. Um, I don't really like my 45 that much for concealed carry, especially in the uh, the warmer times of the month because it's a large gun. Uh, I'm looking at buying a more compact handgun. I'm looking at getting one for my wife. We will buy the same model. We'll compromise on maybe what's better for her and adequate for me uh, because then we'll have that commonality. And we're going to continue with all our firearms to try to create as much redundancy as possible. Uh, be it buying two Glock, you know, 20s, or buying two bursts of 380 Thunders, or what have you, or buying two SKSs, or or buying two AKs or two ARs. I think that's probably the best way to address the problem because you know Murphy's law: what can go wrong will. 
And, and another way of saying that is what you need is what you won't have. And you can have all these great spare parts, and I can almost guarantee you, it's just the way that fate works out, it'll be the one that you didn't think you need that went wrong. Now, the things that tend to not break are things like barrels, right? Your barrels and your, your receivers, uh, with a receiver, you basically have a new gun anyway. So, um, And then, you know, don't overlook the value of things like ARs where you can have a lower and several several uppers and have redundancy through that as well. So um, that's the best I can do with that uh, non-specific specific of a question. If you emailed me uh, the make and model of the weapon that you have, I could do a little research or if it's a weapon that I'm familiar with and tell you the, the parts that most commonly fail in that weapon. Uh, and that would be a little bit more specific. So let's move on from there. This one comes from the comments section. Um, I did a podcast recently where I was talking about California's debt uh, and, and how excessive it is and how they're in deep shit and how they are billions of dollars in all, over $20 billion in all, and they just have to stop the nonsense and cut spending, and that's that's what they have to do now. Well, somebody commented, was a gal, and I get the feeling that she's, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be unfair, but it, this person seems like kind of a government type of person. Uh, maybe not in the government, but at least more trusting and, and putting more uh, dependence on government than me. And if I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry, but just the way your questions and your follows make me feel. Uh, because after she asked the question to me, well, what should they do, uh, somebody else answered it. And I, I didn't answer after that because I felt they gave a great answer. They said, well, there's only two things they can do. They cut they cut spending or they increase taxes. And, and, and I didn't feel the need to elaborate because this poster did an excellent job. And they said, here's the conundrum. If they increase taxes, all they're going to do is piss off more people, and more people will leave, and that's going to lower their revenue base and make the problem worse long term. So their only real solution is to cut spending. That's it. And, um, well, the person came back with, well, what should they cut? You know, I mean, what are the ramifications if they start cutting spending? And, And who gets taxes raised on them? Well, First of all, let me answer the the part about, well, who gets raised? Who gets their taxes raised? No one, because that's the wrong answer. Okay, what the person was saying on the blog was, those are their only two choices. Those are the only things they can do right now to address the problem, is raise taxes or cut spending. And and, and was pretty clear that raising taxes is wrong, wrong, freaking answer. That is what's caused California's misery in the first place. I know this is hard for some people to understand, but when a government raises taxes, when they make them higher, they end up getting less money from their tax base. At first, it goes up. It has to, because they raise it on an existing economy that exists in a certain way. So they take a bigger piece of the pie. But then the economy will contract. Businesses will adapt. Individuals will adapt. And both will tend to leave the economy where they're being oppressed. And when it's a state economy, it's easier to leave than a 
federal economy. So a state can chase business out of the state faster than a nation will chase businesses out of the nation. So tax increases for any in California is a suicide pill right now. They might as well just declare bankruptcy and start from scratch if they're going to take that approach. And the dumbasses probably will because they have more ass clowns in the California legislature, believe it or not, than we do up on Capitol Hill. It is one of the worst-run states in the nation. Now, as for what they should cut, well, the first thing that you do is you get everybody with a dog in a hunt out of the freaking picture, okay? And what that means for, for, for people that maybe aren't familiar with the term is if, if somebody has a vested interest in retaining a program, get them the hell out of the decision about whether to cut it or not. You bring in a group of auditors, and you say, here's the entire state budget. Find me waste. And I bet you there's billions of dollars of waste that independent auditors can find and cut out right away. We've got to be able to agree that any state out there that's that much in the hole and it taxes its people so heavily has to have waste in their economy. Now, some places I think you could start cutting expenses in the state of California. Stop paying state benefits to people that aren't citizens of the United freaking states. If you're an illegal alien, you do not get welfare. You do not get to go to the public school system on my dime. You do not get in-state tuition. You do not get all the other shit that California and my stupid-ass state of Texas are dumb enough to continue to give away to illegal aliens. So right there is billions of dollars that they could cut immediately right now, overnight, and the people getting the cuts won't like it, and I don't freaking care. Because if you are in my nation illegally, you do not qualify to get my freaking money as a gift handed to you. So cut that now. But there are tremendous opportunities to do to do things to improve the economy of California. Those are just a few. How about this, you freaking geniuses in Sacramento? You got oil coming out of your assholes off the coast of California. It can be drilled safely. We do it in Texas all the time. We don't have oil washing up on our shores. If you go down to Freeport, Texas, on a calm day, you can go out in the water up to your neck and look down and see your feet. South Padre Island makes some of the resort towns in Mexico look like a crap hole. And we have oil rigs all the way from the Mexican border all the way up to Louisiana. There are rigs everywhere. They are not environmental hazards, you freaking morons. When you go fishing offshore in Texas... Do you know the first place the guy takes the boat to? Oil rigs, because the fish think they're reeds, and they live there. They're ecosystems harboring massive amounts of life. So why don't you start harvesting your own oil, leasing it to the oil companies, and start to make some freaking money the way states like Alaska and Texas do? Why don't you just get rid of corporate uh, tax in California? How about that? How many businesses do you think would come back to an expanding California if you eliminated corporate uh, income tax in the state of California? Don't tell me you can't do it. We don't do it in Texas. We don't charge our corporations a penny, a penny of income tax in Texas. We are sitting on an $8 billion surplus right now while you are in a $20 billion hole. So cut the taxes. The economy will then rebound on its own. This is so simple. Let me put it to you in a brass tax, simple, easy to understand freaking way. If you own a Walmart store and you're... Regional manager came to you and said, Tom, 
I want you to raise X amount of additional revenue over the next three months with your store. You have control of the store. You know the cost of your goods. You know your margins. Do whatever you want to. Would you, A, raise prices and take out an advertisement in your local newspaper saying, Walmart at 5th and Main has raised prices 15% across the board on everything and will be charging you more money, or B... Put everything on sale that you could still maintain a margin on and advertise that you had everything on sale. Which one would you do? If you're waiting for option C, there isn't an option C because the answer is freaking B. Alright? The answer is B. You would put everything on sale. When, as a government, you cut taxes, you put the entire economy on sale, the economy rises, you get a smaller piece of a much larger pie. Everybody prospers. And you clowns in the legislature, you keep your jobs because people are happy. Because Clinton's guy was right. It is about the economy, stupid. And you stupid people have ruined our economy with your nonsense. And you're destroying California's economy. So those are some of the things I would do. And to the person asking the question, if that's not specific enough, I don't live in California. What I can tell you is we drill the the hell out of gas in Texas. We drill the hell out of oil. We're putting windmills in out the ass right now in West Texas. We're doing more green projects than California is, but we're still pulling gas and oil out of the ground. We have city and state and local government making money off of that all over the place, and individuals making money as well, because people are able to lease the rights to the gas that's under their own house, even in suburban areas, because they put one well in, and they drill for miles around with it. We have no corporate tax. We don't have no individual income tax. The state makes its money off of fees on the roads and the highways, which I think are too high as well, but they're a hell of a lot lower. We have a business-friendly environment, and we have $8 billion sitting in the bank. Okay? So you tell me which system works better. And if you want to see an economy that really knows how to run itself, check out what Alaska's doing and look at what their surplus is compared to how many people are in the entire state. And see what the per capita surplus is in Alaska. It will blow your mind. Look at states like Montana, Wyoming, South and North Dakota. Look at the businesses that are moving to these considered podunk areas. And I I just hope it doesn't ruin them. But the the reason that's happening is business people aren't stupid. They're not in business to make you feel good or make themselves feel good. They're in business to earn a profit. So that's enough of that. That's just what I think. Um, The next question is, how do we make prepping more mainstream? I don't know. I try to do that here on the show. Now, the question also comes from Dark Winter, who had an earlier question. Um, Let me give you a little bit more um, behind what Dark Winter meant by this. Um, If we make prepping more mainstream, we actually will reduce how much tax goes to the government. Because the more independent people become, the less taxes they end up paying, and the less they're likely to support the government. If there is a disaster, the the better it will be managed, because the more people will be prepared for it. So it was really more about, how do we make prepping more mainstream so that everybody benefits, and not just the sheep? Even if we make prepping mainstream to the the crazy liberal, uh, the nut job, kumbaya, hippie, granola-munching liberal, eventually they're going to become more liberty-oriented just through their very actions. So how do we do this? Um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity, but I think it really, all big movements start with the grassroots level of friends telling friends. 
And that's why I tried to grow this show through that method right there. And I've asked people from day one, share my show with other people. Share what you're doing with other people. Stop hiding who you are, right? And maybe you don't refer to yourself as a survivalist. Just say, hey, you know what? I was watching this report the other day on CNN. And they were talking about how the economy has got long-term woes. And one of the things we've done to better balance our portfolio is X, Y, and Z. And in addition to that, I've been looking at some of the things that are going on. And we've decided we're going to keep an extra 30 days worth of food in the house just in case we end up with a quarantine this fall uh, due to either an actual pandemic with swine flu or of an overreaction to the government from swine flu. Start just sharing what you're doing. When you start telling people what you do rather than what you think, it has a bigger impact on them. Uh, if I go out and tell somebody, I think you should plant a garden, gardens are useful, they're a lot less likely to take action than if I show them my garden. So start showing people the actions that you're taking, whatever it is that you're you're comfortable with. And, and then Dark Winter had a lot of ideas, things like creating gun clubs and uh, nature clubs and hiking clubs and stuff like that. I think those are great ways to bring people together that already have a certain amount of like-mindedness. I think the permaculture movement and the organic gardening movements are probably two of the biggest ways to bring in kind of the left fringe into the fold as well. And I'll tell you what, if you want to know how to make a gun-hating liberal into a liberty-oriented person, take them to the gun range. Put a gun in their hand and let them shoot. Um, it will start a transformation process. You won't have to do much else. I've done it myself, and I can tell you it works because they begin to understand the power. They begin to understand how safe gun owners really treat their weapons. Uh, they begin to understand that there's people doing this every day, and they're not out there bothering anybody. When they go to a range, they see uh, you know several dozen people out there all being courteous to each other, shooting, enjoying themselves, parents with children, wives, husbands, daughters, cousins, uncles, all enjoying this as an American pastime, and they actually get to participate in it. For many of them, they've never had that experience, so they're condemning something they do not understand. Uh, so those are just some thoughts on that. Let me go ahead and take the last one so we can wrap up. Um, guy asked me, what's a good ammo assortment for a 12-gauge shotgun that he's going to keep up at his bug-out location? And uh, this is better than how much ammo do you keep on hand. I hate that question because it's so subjective. With, with a specific a question like this, it's a little bit easier to address. Now, since you're keeping it at your bug out location, I have to assume that you could end up in a situation where it's all you have, and you have to use it for everything from putting game in, in you know, on the, in the pot to uh, self-defense to tactical response needs. Um, so, your assortment should include slugs, buckshot, and birdshot. Definitely, you want all of them. Uh, my thought on slugs is at least a hundred. That's now your rifle, so at least 100, if not 200 or more rounds. Um, now, how much uh, uh, you actually do is up to you, because it's how much money do you have to invest in this? How much ammo do you already have? What do you already have? What can you substitute based on what you have? Do you reload? You, know, you can buy a cheap Lee reloader for like 50 bucks for shotgun shells and buy a bunch of components and have a lot more flexibility. Um, shotgun ammunition is not very scarce compared to things like handgun ammunition and rifle ammunition right now. So you have a lot more options. But at least a couple hundred rounds of slugs, I would say, because if in your, what you're describing, that's now your rifle. I would also uh, get 
just a pile of basically as much as you can afford of either double O or number four buck, and I would say a combination is better. For tactical needs, people breaking into your home, uh, things like that, I'm a huge fan for of number four buck. I think it has less over-penetration capability, uh, so it's less likely in a home defense situation to go through a wall and hurt a loved one or hurt a neighbor. Um, it still can. Uh, I've talked about using, you know, heavy birdshot like copper-plated BB or copper-plated number fours for home defense, and I think in a lot of small uh, homes where they'll have a lot of distance, it's more than adequate, and we'll have a lot less over-penetration on walls, but number four is a better choice for that. Um, for hunting for deer, uh, bear, mid-sized game, you're better off with double O, um, and I would have at least a couple hundred rounds of both of those. And then you're going to need birdshot. And I'm a huge fan for things like uh, quail and dove of actually using number nines, what a lot of people are not real fond of and think the shot size is too small, but I've had excellent results, especially at 12 gauge with those, and I put a lot more birds down with them. So I would want a couple hundred rounds at least of number nine shot. The most universal shot size for small game hunting is probably seven and a halfs. Um, they're still small enough that you have a large payload at it, you know, like an ounce and a quarter or larger load. Um, so they uh, are still useful for taking things down like quail and dove. Uh, they're not so large that they'll over damage your meat, and then they're heavy enough that they'll take uh, effectively game that's a little bit tougher like squirrels uh, and ring pheasant and, and larger birds, even turkey. It's not it's not a good turkey load, but if you uh, were close enough with a good tight choke, seven and a half in the head on a tom, you're going to put them down. So I would have a very large assortment of seven and a half. And uh, I would also look at getting some six shot. I think six shot's much better for rabbit and squirrel. And uh, finally, I would have a good assortment, maybe 100 rounds of some good solid, what you would call turkey or duck slash geese loads, uh, number four uh, variety, three-inch magnum if you're, if you're going to handle it. Let's talk about the shotgun a little bit, though, because your versatility of a shotgun goes right along with the barrel and or chokes. I would definitely select a shotgun that has multiple chokes uh, available, like the REM choke model where you have the choke tubes. I would want a improved cylinder, a modified and a full at minimum, and I would really consider getting a rifled barrel for, or a cylinder barrel with rifle sights for your slug shooting. I think with that, you have a fairly equipped arsenal, and then shotgun shells are cheap, so it's easy to continually add some more here and there, but that would be my initial assortment for a 12-gauge, and I would tell you, with that assortment, you could take care of yourself for a good long while. I would definitely, though, have a very large supply of, like I said, seven and a halfs or eights and maybe nines. Uh, small game is usually the easiest thing to harvest uh, on a day-to-day basis, so really consider keeping a good supply of that bird shot that doesn't seem that tactical because it might come down to a point where you're not really worried about defending yourself so much as you're worried about making sure that you can put some food on the table. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap today's show up right at 40 minutes. So this one came out to just about a perfect length. Um, Once again, thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all of you that share my show with other people. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It doesn't matter cause it all gets spent